Tetragrammaton. like I was always running around. I was always kind of, I loved games. So it wasn't like I was a total bookworm and I was the youngest of four children. So it was a kind of, it was a busy house in terms of like just energy. Difference in the ages between you and your siblings? My eldest brother, he's, older brother, he's five years older than me. And then I've got a sister who's four years, and then a sister who's two years older. So it was four Pretty of close. us within five years, yeah. Mm. And then a younger brother with my mum and, her second husband, my stepfather, arrived 13 years after I was born. So I was the youngest for a good chunk of time. So, and all of that goes with being the youngest in the family. Do you think your tastes were shaped by your siblings? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I think definitely my musical taste was shaped by my elder brother, who was like going up to his room. There was a lot of vinyl there. He was really into heavy metal. He got me into like Led Zeppelin. and he got me into Black Sabbath and Rush and Genesis. And he was kind of into that sort of music. But my parents were like big, there were more, it was more books than music in the house, put it that way. There was a record player and we did listen to music, but it was, yeah, I suppose I kind of, we like listened to the charts together and stuff like that, me and my siblings. And apart from my brother who got really into a particular kind of area of music, like, but it was a house full of books. Kind of, there were, if not books in every room, and it was quite a big house, there were books in multiple rooms. So it always felt to me like books were just part of the reality that I knew as a child. Yeah, there's a lovely line in David Mitchell's novel, A Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot, where this guy, Dr. Marisness, is explaining to Jacob de Zoot, the protagonist, how about his childhood. He was brought up by these two women in this house that had a an amazing library and he said to this printed garden i was given the keys which i just love a printed garden is the most beautiful description of a library and i kind of i remember when i read that phrase and when i was reading this book i was like yeah i was i was kind of given keys to a printed garden as a child and that garden has just got bigger as i've grown as i've just discovered more books and been involved in the creation of books the garden has just kind of has been multiplying were both your parents big readers my dad was a gardener and then he was a river keeper. So he, but he was, he was really into history and he, they, and my mum definitely loved reading, but I wouldn't say they were, books weren't their life in the way that they are some people. So how did it occur for the house to be so full of books? Because I think they were kind of culturally curious people and books were just part of the kind of broader fabric of, of what kind of, but what was also beautiful Rick was there was so much, there were so many beautiful things in the house books being one of them my mum was amazing is and i'm still she, she's still alive an amazing collector of art and sculptures and beautiful furniture and tables so the my sense of aesthetics was really kind of honed in this beautiful house but it was also a big garden with a stretch of the river itch and at the bottom and my father spent most of the time outdoors working so my sense of connection with nature from a very young age I was allowed to kind of run wild and there were these woods in the garden and this stretch of the river and my dad was always kind of was building bonfires with him so I was kind of I had that other side which in certain respects was a bigger part of my father's life than say books but um it was a lovely balance and combination yeah. I feel very blessed to have had that kind of how would you describe the area where was the house it was located? In, it was in the south of England in a 
county called Hampshire, so it's kind of an hour southwest of London. And yeah, it's a pretty part of England. And we were, it was a very lovely house to grow in. If you were to go shopping for groceries, where would you go? Probably Winchester was the kind of closest city that one would kind of do shopping in. There was a big vegetable garden there as well at the house. So there was not a huge amount of growing. It was not like we were kind of self-sufficient. Just to picture the city, was it one row of of buildings or was it a whole? Do you know, Winchester is like a kind of ancient city. It was, I think it was the capital of Wessex in kind of 1000 AD. It's got one of, I think it's got one of the longest naves of any cathedral in the world. Winchester Cathedral is, is an extraordinary cathedral. So it's a kind of ancient city. And I went to school there as well at a school called Winchester College, which is, I think it's the oldest school in England. So it's got like, it's got an amazing history as a city. So it was, um, but not big. It didn't feel metropolitan or kind of urban. It was like a, a big town is what it felt like, but it also had kind of things like this extraordinary cathedral and, and uh, yeah, it had a real deep sense of history as a place. Yeah, and that was only four miles from our house or something, but where we felt, felt, really in the country. It was like a felt, you felt very removed from kind of urban life there. And then when at school, would you say music was a major part of your life? Nope. It was, I think like, I, I was into it. I'm like yeah. really into music, but I, w- I wasn't playing any instruments, for example. And no, I was a DJ at that. That's what I'm saying. But not at that age. I got into DJing. I really got deeply into music when I was, when I went to Edinburgh University. I was already really into music, but I was very fortunate in that in my first year at Edinburgh University I lived in a private flat rather than going into kind of student halls someone had said oh a friend who was already at university a friend of one of my sisters said don't go into Pollock halls you know there's so many better options and and she hooked me up with this guy called Charlie McVeigh and so I lived with he was in his third year and there were two other third years when in that and I was in my first year and I walked into Charlie's flat and I reckon there were like 1,500, 2,000 records in this house. And he had the most beautiful magpie eye and ears when it came to records. There was like jazz and funk and Latin and hip hop and reggae and folk and country and classical and opera. And it was really, and a lot of rare vinyl, particularly from America, you know, so it was, and I was suddenly like, I had this incredible kind of space to learn. And he taught me also buying secondhand records. We'd go out a lot of secondhand record shops. And that's when I got really into jazz and funk and soul and hip hop and reggae. And that that's what ultimately led to me starting this club in my third year at university when all these, a lot of my peers had like left. And, and I also, no one was playing in any club the sort of music I wanted to dance to. So it was a kind of, on one level, a purely selfish thing. I wanted to play the kind of music I loved on a big sound system and and had enough of a sense of its quality and belief in its quality as, as and just its beauty as dance music that if I loved it that much, kind of why wouldn't other people love it? And mm. that turned out to be true. So we used to get just great crowds turning up at the club who just... It's interesting that back when, when we were growing up, the access was such a key. I remember in terms of music, I had one cousin, when I went to his house, he had Bruce Springsteen records and um, more like traditional rock records. And then I had another cousin who had Kraftwerk albums and Talking Heads albums and more modern sounds. 
but that was the only access. It's in the, you know, in those days, if you didn't have access to these albums... To the actual physical thing. You couldn't really hear that music. There was no way to access it other than buying the albums or knowing someone who had and them. Completely. And kind of, and the first record Charlie ever played me, I remember, it was, he was almost like vetting me to see if he was willing, you know, if he, I was someone he'd want to have in his flat for a year. And he'd just come back from New York. His, his mum and dad were American. And he'd just bought... That second Simande album called Promised Heights, I don't know if you know, know it. it. Oh, it's De La Soul off the first album, Three Feet High and Rising. I think they take four or five of the samples off it, and there are a lot of samples on that record, but four or five come from the first two Simande albums. Let's, See, play, a little, let's play a little clip from it. The first okay. track he played was called The Recluse. Okay. Um, and it's Simande, C-Y-M-A-N-D-E. Sitting, smoking. And the fact that it was as long ago as it was, and you remember this particular track, yeah. is incredible. Particular track. This must have been 1988. I'm yeah. in Charlie's flat on his parents' not flat house on Gilston Road in London. I walk in, and I've never met him before. We have this mutual friend called Lucy, and and we're just chatting away. And he's just come back from New York, and he, it's got a beautiful cover. The Promised Heights is the name of the album. I remember him getting it out, putting it on. This is the first song he played me, and I was just like, I'd never heard anything like it before. And I was like, immediately, like, whoa, that's beautiful. The whole record's beautiful. And the first album is also great. And I, it was interesting, like, the, the first album has a song called The Message on it, which you, not as in Grandmaster Flash is The Message, but there's a beautiful cover by Blue Mitchell, the trumpeter of it in 1973, which is probably one of the hardest funk tracks I've ever heard. Also a cover of Samande's The Message. It's a beautiful reggae more reggae version of the message. I forget who did that. And it kind of got me realizing there's this huge kind of world of music that I didn't know anything about. So to then be in this flat where, and Charlie, because he was very into this music, and he found someone who was a kind of, almost like a kind of disciple who was like just wanting to just, I just had a huge hunger for, and also we happened to like a lot of the same music in terms of, but it was such an eclectic range. It wasn't like we were into just one kind of niche. So I felt what a blessing when I look back in hindsight that age 19, I was suddenly living in this flat with a beautifully curated collection by this guy who had magnificent taste in music. And it just, it opened so many doors in my mind and in my, I, I, I went to so many places thanks to being in this flat. And it kind of, it was from there that my kind of real passion and love of music and particularly, you know, I think it was, Black American and Jamaican and American music, that's where so much of what we were listening to, the blues, the funk, the soul, the reggae, the dub, but you know, and, and it goes back to that point you were making the, 
the less obvious stuff that you wouldn't hear. Radio, kind you would of never certain hear. radio stations you, might play if you were if lucky. If you didn't go to that house that day, you may have never heard any of yeah. that music in True. the rest of your life because it's not around. I mean, now we can access it, yeah. but unless you knew to look for it, yeah. you wouldn't look for it. Yeah. No, it was great. When I remember but there was something you were talking about which reminded me of the experience when we were when I was running the club Chocolate City, these two DJs, Andy or A1 as he was known, he was kind of brilliant hip-hop DJ and kind of scratching champion in Scotland. And this other guy, John, like... The, the scratching champion of Scotland, the idea that that exists. Yeah, they had a funny. competition for like kind of, and <laughs> they were both brilliant hip-hop DJs. So their skills of mixing were just way beyond mine. I was more of a selector than a yeah. really technically brilliant mixer. Yeah, And it was lovely. We used to do the Club Chocolate City every Thursday. And sometimes it was every other Thursday. And I remember we'd kind of, we'd get to the club and one of us will have just suddenly got a record that the other two had heard about, but had never heard before. And it like, so he would suddenly, John would suddenly bring out like, I've just got this incredible Soul Searchers album and like we're putting it on it. It's a track that's already got, it's got a track and it's already been sampled by Public Enemy or whatever. We're like, oh my God, that's the fucking original. Or we're listening to kind of Herbie Hancock's Wiki Whack, is it called? The one that are backed by Dope Demand samples. And it's suddenly, like, oh my God, we're listening to the original or blow up the Herbie Hancock, which is then um, taken by Groovers in the Heart by Delight. Yeah. The sense of like, oh my God, you're holding almost like like holy relics it felt like for us because also as bits of art setting aside what's in the record just the physical object this was often it was like deleted vinyl and you'd be getting this pressing from 1972 and it's the original thing and it felt holy to us yeah and, and it, it was, was like the source code it was the source code <laughs> yes and it was like and we 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 taught each other we sh we brought into each other's lives all sorts of music over this four years of running this club together. And I was like running it, but they were the kind of two main DJs. And my girlfriend, who was actually Charlie's younger sister, so I met my first wife through Charlie. Not only did he introduce me to this whole extraordinary kind of world of music that I might not have otherwise realized, he also introduced me to my first wife, the mother of my eldest two kids. And so I feel, feel very indebted to Charlie and that set of circumstances that resulted in this living with each other for a year and then, you know, living with his, his sister for 12 years or something. So, um, and it reminds us that when you were looking for a place to live, you weren't looking for that experience. No, you were looking for a place to live while you were going to school. Yeah, exactly. I had no and idea. The universe the provided this opportunity for you yeah. and you recognized it and dove in and grabbed it with both arms. Cause I could feel there was something really of value and of joy and of meaning because it ended up having a very significant impact on my life in lots of ways. In fact, it was Charlie was also, I was actually went to, I went to Edinburgh to do history of art was the degree I was kind of nominally, you had arrived to do. But the lovely thing about the Scottish university system is it's four years rather than three years. And as long as you do the necessary modules in your first two years, you can actually just, you don't have to fix on your honors degree until your third year. And he was, he was doing literature and he said, you know, I was, I was trying to work out which of the other subjects I would do along with history of art, which I had to do as one of my three modules. And I did English Lit 1 and English Lang 1. And I ended up doing my degree in literature, partly because again, Charlie's saying, you know, history of art's great, but literature, I think would be more interesting for you. And he was, I think, right. And then 
again, it was with Charlie. I'm in a record shop called Vinyl Villains at the top of Leith Walk, which is this long road that goes from the center of Edinburgh down to the docks. And there's a record shop called Vinyl Villains. And we're like going through the bins together. And we, we'd often go out buying records together. And it was a great time for buying interesting vinyl. You never knew what you were going to find in a shop. And I, I see this reggae sunsplash record from 1980. And... It's got a Gil Scott Heron track on it. It's mainly reggae artists. It's Michigan and Smiley. It's Sugar Miner. But there's a Gil Scott Heron live track of, uh, there's a recording of him performing live a song he wrote about nuclear power stations called Shut Em Down. And I'd heard in someone else's flat just two weeks earlier, someone had put on the H2O Gate Blues by Gil Scott Heron off, off the album Winter in America. And again, I was like, who is this singing? I'd never heard Gil's voice before. And the guy was called John Trigg. He's like, oh, it's this guy called Gil Scott Heron. And I don't know how well you know that song, the H2A Gate Blues. It's his, it's Gil's decimation of the Nixon administration. Just let's listen to a little bit. <laughs> don't want to be involved in this, man. This here, this is, this is going to be a blues number. Yeah. But first I want to do a little bit of background on the blues and say what it is. Like there are six cardinal colors and colors have always come to signify more than simply that particular shade. Like redneck or got the blues. That's where you apply colors to something else, you know, to come up with what it is you're trying to say. So there are six cardinal colors, yellow, red, orange, green, blue, and purple. And there are 3,000 shades. And if you take these 3,000 shades and divide them by six, you'll come up with 500. Oh, yeah. Meaning there are at least 500 shades of the blues. <laughs> For example, there's the I ain't got me no money blues. There is the I ain't got me no woman blues. There's the I ain't got me no money and I ain't got me no woman, which is the double blues. And for years, it was thought that, that black people was the only one who could get the blues. So, so the blues hadn't come into no international type of fame. But lately, we done had Frank Rizzo with the lie detector blues. We done had the United States government talking about the energy crisis blues. And we're going to dedicate this next poem here to, to Spearhead X. The X second in command in terms of this country. And the poem is called H2O G-A-T-E Blues. And if H2O is still water and G-A-T-E is still gate, what we're getting ready to deal on is the Watergate Blues. Let me see if I can dial this number right quick. Click. Click. I'm sorry. The government you have elected is inoperative. Click. Inoperative. Just how blind will America be? The world is on the edge of its seat, defeat on the horizon. Very surprising that we all could see the plot and still could not. Let me do that part again. Just how blind will America be? The world is on the edge of its seat, defeat on the horizon. Very surprising that we all could see the plot and claimed that we could not. Just how blind, America. Just as Vietnam exploded in the rice, snap, crackle, and pop could not stop people determined to be free. Just how blind will America be? So, 
played that age 19, I was like, fuck me, this guy is, he's got it all. He's got humor, he's got political sharpness, he's satirical, he's got a gorgeous voice, the music with Brian Jackson and him, just with, the, with these incredible kind of creative partners. And yeah, that, came, that record came out in 1973, so just after Watergate, he drops that like three months after Nixon's been impeached. And it's just like, and I was like, wow. And then I'm in this record shop going through the bins and it's this reggae sunsplash. And I see Gil Scott Heron's name. I'm like, whoa, that's kind of, and it's also on a, his dad was actually Jamaican. So that's not the reason why he was in Kingston, but he always had a connection with Jamaica. His, his dad was actually the first black footballer to play in the Scottish leagues. He was called the Black Arrow and he played in the 1950s, played for Celtic in Glasgow. So I pick up this record, I've still got it, it's £2.50 from Vinyl Villains, and then another beautiful thing, Gil is playing at the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh in four weeks' time. I'm going, no fucking way. This guy who I've just heard two weeks ago and then I've just bought this record by a week ago or 10 days ago, he's playing in Edinburgh. So that's like, I've got to go and see this guy. And by this stage, I'm starting to listen to some of his other music. And, and just so I have an idea, how often do artists come through Edinburgh? reasonably often, but I can't, Gil probably hadn't been there for at least two or three years, but he loved touring, kind of, first of all, he loved playing live and he loved the UK, he always had a strong kind of, mm -hmm. he had a strong set, a lot of friends here, a lot of connections with the, mm. here and around Europe he used to play, he was like particularly popular in France and Italy and Spain, he, he loved playing shows in Europe. So I get my ticket, I think Charlie's there too, and we, a bunch of us go and see Gil. I witnessed one of the most, at that point in my life, hands down the most remarkable live show I'd ever seen. And he's, I don't know if you ever saw Gil play live, but he was as beautiful a communicator, the way he worked with audience, the way he spoke to audience, he would begin, he was a stand-up comedian as well as a brilliant. So he would, he would sit on stage to begin with, without the rest of the band, in front of the keyboards, and he would just start rapping and chatting, and he would be like, so good at ad-libbing. So if something, someone yelled something out from the crowd, his, just, his comebacks were so sharp and funny and beautiful. There was a kind of, there was a soulfulness to him and a kind of wisdom, but with this kind of gorgeous humor overlaying everything that, and then he and his band are fucking awesome. And he's got a voice, one of the great, to me, great voices in music. And afterwards, on my own, I remember I taught my way backstage and I, got, I brought this copy. How old of, were you now? I was like 19. I got the copy of this from this reggae sunsplash from 1980. I taught my way backstage. And it's not that difficult to get backstage, but I just said I'd love to, to, to say thank you and, uh, and to say hello to, Mr., to Gil Scott Heron. And uh, anyway, it's not, he's not like super tight about that. I think Gil doesn't really give a shit. So he's like, yeah, within 15 minutes, I'm chatting to Gil, I'm just like, look, I, I've only come to your music recently, and he can tell I'm just someone who's clearly been profoundly affected by his work, and what artist doesn't in some way connect with that? And then after about five minutes of chatting away, I bring out this record, and he just goes, what the fuck is this? I've never seen this record in my life. And I'm like, well, I just bought it. It's, uh, and I'm like, not embarrassed, but it's kind of funny that Gil's yeah. never seen the record before. Anyway, we have a real laugh about that. He thinks it's very amusing. And then he's like, he calls me bingo from the word go. He's like, bingo. Um, I'm doing a residency at the Jazz Cafe in Camden next week. Do you want to, can I put you on my guest list? And I was like, I would love to be. So I go back there. I go and see him again. Second time, second show's every bit as good as the first. Similar in ways, very different in others. And again, afterwards, I go backstage and we keep on chatting. And so this is all in 1989. And um, 
we end up kind of just staying in touch. And whenever he's playing in the UK, he's always puts me on his guest list. And then I, in 1991, I write, or 1990, I'm trying to think when I started, I write my dissertation for my English degree is called A Development of the Black Oral Tradition, the Hip Hop Lyric. And I was really interested to see where hip hop had evolved from, particularly lyrically, but actually just in all sorts as a kind of form of, of art, the political, the um, socioeconomic, the musical, the literary, the kind of drawing off the oral tradition in all these ways that, you know, there were, it was a kind of area that I was really interested in. I read Ben Sidron's brilliant book called Black Talk. It's where that book I was telling you about last night, Leroy Jones's book, Blues People. It's when I first read that. And Gill is a very significant figure in this. If you think of, you know, the revolution will not be televised from 1970, you, his whole style of delivery, and you even get a little flavor of that in the H2O Gate Blues. You can see why it was never a title that he was comfortable with, but he was called the godfather of rap and all of that, because he, if you listen to particularly something like the revolution will not be televised with that kind of recurring baseline, it's almost like it's a sample in terms of the way it's being used. So I ended up, writing about Gill and I was writing about Public Enemy and I was writing about Syl Johnson and James Brown and Millie Jackson and Ice-T and um, just people that I thought were kind of part of this interesting kind of journey from the 60s through to basically we're talking late 80s in terms of hip hop. And during this time, I discovered a few things which then affected the publishing I did later. First of all, that Gill had written a novel when he was 21 in 1970 called The Vulture, and he wrote a novel when he was 23 in 1972 called The Nigger Factory. So not only did I write about my dissertation, but I was reading about this other work of his, which was kind of unknown to most people who went to his music. The books had never been published in the UK before. And when I ended up taking over Canongate in 94, Kind of that's fast forwarding a bit in terms of this story, but I ended up getting into publishing and I ended up taking over this publishing house that I joined in 92, in 94. One of the first people I called, one of the first things I wanted to do was to, to reprint these novels of Gills because I knew there'd be an audience for them. You knew there'd be an audience, you. You were yeah. the audience, like you <laughs> well, knew. Exactly. You wanted these books. And that was my guiding principle, both as a DJ and as a publisher, is if I want to listen to it, if I want to read it, I don't believe I'm going to be on my own because I think I've been reading enough and listening enough to know what is good and what's got kind of lasting value or real impact. Something, if something's really affecting me, I'm not alone. Like I'm just, I'm one of- You're a human. I'm a human. We're all connected in, yeah. in profound fundamental ways. So, and if something affects you profoundly and fundamentally, then my belief is that it's going to affect good others. Good chance. Yeah, there's a good chance. Best chance you have. <laughs> yeah, it's the best guide you've got. The market's going to tell you nothing about that. The market is this kind of, it's not even worth talking about on one level other than that you, we have to operate within it, but it's not a guiding principle. And as a DJ, I wasn't playing the music that I thought they were going to like. They happened to love the music we were DJing because we loved it. Yes. And so that was, that was why the, DJing, because I ended up fast forwarding a little bit, I do my dissertation on hip hop lyrics. So I'm getting hip hop lyrics and the evolution of the black rural tradition. And I'm getting more and more into music. And then I get to this stage where I realize that the kind of music that I'm increasingly becoming kind of knowledgeable about and loving is not being played in any clubs in Edinburgh. Seriously, occasionally you might hear a DJ drop one track that would be drawing from this incredible period of like, 68 to 74 for black American music is just like, to me, like in terms of dance music. And uh, it was just a very purple patch of extraordinary, it's not to say there wasn't brilliant music happening before and brilliant after, but that was a, a kind of particularly 
incredible moment when all those jazz musicians went electric and all that kind of stuff that happened in the late 60s. Anyway, so the club Chocolate City, which was what it was called, that was named, I'm sure you know, um, this Parliament record from 1975, which again, jumping ahead and doing a full circle here, little did I know when I was calling my club Chocolate City, the lyrics or part of the, the kind of George Clinton rap in Chocolate City is they still call it the White House, but that is a temporary condition. In my house, Stevie Wonder will be the Minister of Fine Art. Richard Pryor will be the Secretary of Entertainment. Aretha Franklin will be the First Lady. And everyone will have to carry a James Brown pass. And it just, Chocolate Cities with Vanilla Suburbs. It was just, it felt like a great name for a club, Chocolate City, because of the music we were playing. I didn't know that in, then in 2008, I would end up acquiring, before he'd even declared he was going to run for the Democratic nomination against Hillary Clinton, I would acquire Barack Obama's memoir, Dreams from My Father, and he would then become the fucking president of the United States. Unbelievable. So, you know, this was Clinton's vision for, they still call it the White House, but that's a temporary condition. And when Obama went in, it was still obviously called the White House, but it changed its color in certain it changed respects. our understanding of what was possible. Yeah, exactly. So I love these kind of, as I said, I had no idea when this club I started in, in 1990, I didn't know that it was gonna have such a profound impact on my life because it kept me in Edinburgh after I finished university. And it was because I stayed in Edinburgh that I ended up working as a voluntary worker for this publishing house. I joined it in November 92, I joined Canongate and I've been there ever since. Tell me your first role and how did your roles progress within the company? I was, um, I don't think I had a job title again. I was just like a voluntary worker. I'd, I'd written to Stephanie Wolf Murray, who's the name of the name of the woman who was then running Canongate, but had actually founded it in 1973 with her husband, uh, Gus Wolf Murray and a guy called Charles Wilde. It was still a relatively new company, yeah. 10 years 20, old? No, 20, 73. So it was, and I was joining in 92. So it was okay. 19 years it had been going. Yeah. And it had been kind of publishing some interesting books during that time, but it was, it had gone into receivership. It had gone, been put into bankruptcy in 1990 before I joined it. And then Stephanie bought back her business, but never had enough kind of working capital. So it had been kind of limping on through 91. And when I joined in November 92, kind of not only did I probably deserve not to be paid anything because I was just, you know, I knew nothing, but they also couldn't afford to pay me anything. And then they, they got, bought in March 93 by a big school and library supplier called Albany Books. That was when I was first given a formal job title and a contract. And I was working in the publicity department, but I was always, because I'd done my degree in literature and I was like a big reader. I was, Stephanie just saw in me someone she could share manuscripts with, or I would come across something and say, I think this is really, and I, I had this insatiable curiosity as I just generally do to, learn about every aspect of publishing. I was fast, I was, the first book I ever worked on was an extraordinary new translation of the complete works of the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova done by this American woman called Judith Hemshemeyer and they're just these extraordinary translations. And I'd studied Russian history and Russian literature as part of my degree. So I was aware of Akhmatova, not like a kind of expert on her, but I was very aware of, she was a very significant, you know, Russian poet of the 20th century and so, the head of publicity was on maternity leave at that time. So I'd been kind of seconded into that department. I was reporting into her assistant and I said, I'm like really intact model. I'd love to um, look after the publicity for this book. And I ended up 
writing to every literary editor in the country, writing a very impassioned letter about why I thought this book was so good. And it ended up getting literally blanket coverage, every single newspaper. And Andrew Motion wrote this kind of extraordinary review in The Observer, just saying this is the kind of supreme achievement of lyric poetry. Michael Hoffman in The Times wrote this amazing review. And before we published the book, I knew that I was, we were going to get a lot of review attention. So I was like, I was asking Stephanie about how the books got sold into the bookshops and the reps go around with their bags and they show them the covers. And, and I looked at the advance orders for this book and I could see there were like a hundred orders for the book across the UK. And I'm like, but we're going to be getting like the most insane amount of publicity. So I then start working the phones in the evening at the end of the day, calling the poetry departments, trying to talk to the poetry bar at Waterstones Deansgate in Manchester or Waterstones in, in Gower Street or Borders on Charing Cross Road. And I think I like quadruple the sub for the book, the advance orders just on the telephone. And then the book ends up selling and reordering. And we sell like way more copies than anyone ever expected us to sell of this book. And it got this extraordinary attention. And it was just, it became clear to me that so much of what determines the success of a book is the kind of energy that you pour into it. And at some point, books can sell themselves. But your responsibility when you're launching a book is to help raise a level of awareness so at least people know about it. If you never, if you don't read a review and it's not in a bookshop, the likelihood of you even coming across it is, this again is pre-internet, you know, it's, it's pretty small. Mm -hmm. So that was a very kind of instructive first experience of publishing, working on this Akhmadova book, and also believing, I know nothing about publishing, I don't know anything about publicity really, except I've been running a club, so I knew a little bit about marketing and publicity and that, but I knew that if you approach someone in the right way and it's genuine, your belief and passion for something, you can be persuasive. And I persuaded all these literary editors to review this book, which got more coverage than any Canongate book they'd published had got in like years. So it was, a, it was also a book that felt very significant. So on one level, I had a great thing to be working with, but it, yeah. it was a very... Persuasive me... is an interesting word. It's accurate, but there's something negative about persuading someone. It made... And I feel like you were sharing something I was evangelizing. Loved. I was evangelizing were... about it, and it ended up having the impact of them commissioning it. You're right. I wasn't maybe persuaded, persuaded could be seen as a pejorative word. It almost suggests you're getting someone to do something against their wishes. Exactly. Kind of thing. And, and, I, and it doesn't sound and like that's that. Not what it's it like was. you're sharing something you love and, they, and it's exciting. It's it, an exciting feeling. And they appreciated the fact that I was bringing Absolutely. it to their attention because then, then the people they commissioned to review it wrote extraordinary. It got, it, not only did it get blanket review coverage, the reviews were, were kind of out of this world as in people saying, this is a major book. This is a major poet. You must buy it kind of thing. And so a literary editor, they like it when a, what the, whoever they assign it to review really responds strongly to a book and says, that's what a great literary editor should be doing is, is commissioning reviews of the books that really deserve merit attention. So that was a very, I very quickly at my time at Canongate, I had an experience that gave me more confidence in what I was doing and also made Stephanie say, well, wow, you did that with this. And so it became almost without it being, I was still a voluntary worker, by the way, when I was doing that on the Akhmadova, but then I became formally part of the kind of, the team and the company in March of 1993. This was in Feb 93, we published this, this Akhmadova book. And then the company got bought and without getting into all the details of that, they then got into financial difficulties. So in 94, it became clear that this wasn't really sustainable, the kind of business for them and their own core business, this school and library supply was starting to falter. 
And Stephanie, who'd become a really good friend of mine by then, she was very open to me about the kind of perilous nature of, of the kind of business and, and that it was probably going to be put into receivership for a second time within four years. And that's when I started thinking, there's a way to do this that's different from the way it's been done today. And also, it was an amazing opportunity for me because the sum of money that we ended up paying for the business was actually a pretty small amount of money. And we, of course, we had to get working capital as well. But by September 94, we'd completed a management buyout of it. We effectively bought it as a going concern, although Albany put it into receivership for various financial reasons. It was better for them to do that and to write off all the money they owed to different people. And um, anyway, that's more te- that's more detail than one needs. You were able but- to acquire the company for very little yeah. and save it from probably going away. Yeah, it, I think it would have gone away. There wasn't enough of a kind of brand at Canongate and it didn't have a strong enough identity or even core list of back catalogs to make it for one of the big, it would have been in a London, one of the London groups say, oh, we want to buy Canongate as an imprint. So it probably would have disappeared entirely and those books would have remained in the world but and some of them might have been picked up for reprint rights at another publishing house. But yeah, we probably, by doing what we did, ensured that Canongate as a publishing imprint and as a kind of as an entity it changed from Canongate Press to Canongate Books for legal reasons we had to change its name in that respect but it Canongate as a result of that uh, had its the third kind of stage of its life as an entity and it's just celebrated its 50th anniversary this year which I look back on and think Rick how did that happen because it was not always straightforward and it never is publishing but it was particularly hand to mouth for the first kind of five years. And it's always been a bit of a roller coaster as in it's so difficult to kind of predict how a book's gonna do. It's sometimes you're disappointed, sometimes you're absolutely delighted and things, and we thankfully have had a more than our fair share of kind of breaks and bits of luck that have ended up with a book selling way more copies than we'd expected. So I love that as you told that story, the bell rang. Felt the new good. chapter. It felt good. The world was agreeing with your story. It was beautiful. <laughs> As are these swallows, which I absolutely love. I've been your swallows here. Just <laughs> are they swifts or are they swallows? I think they're swallows, aren't they? I think they're swallows. They're swallows. All, all I know is that they they migrate here from Africa every year. The same birds come to the exact same spot every year, and then when the season changes, they go back to Africa, and then they fly back. This time next year, you will see these same birds building nests in the exact same location, not in the same area. Exactly. No, we, we had them at the house I grew up in outside of Winchester, which we talked about at the beginning. It's called Abbotsworthy, and we, had, we used to have incredible swallows coming there. My mu- I was actually born in this house, in the actual house. My mum had her fourth child, me, in the house. And she said when she was in the last week or so and she had bed rest, she was like, she could see this nest where these swallow, this swallow was had its young. And she was watching this as she was going through the final stages of her pregnancy with me. And then, so I've, swallows, I've always had this lovely connection with yeah. in terms of the beginning of my life and my mum. How often do you come across something that you're excited about to publish? Tell me about what the life of a publisher is like. Uh, well, the good thing at Canongate is there are lots of routes by which books come into the publishing house for us to kind of think about. And sometimes we go out and get things or we commission things or there's an old book that we buy the reprint rights. So it's no one proactively comes to us with it. We go out and try and make something happen. But I have 
an amazing group of colleagues at Canongate. There are 60 of us in total now at the company. And in terms of the commissioning team and the editorial side, there are six active commissioning editors who have all have different relationships with different agents, with different authors, with different international publishers. So I feel like every week, one or two, maybe sometimes three interesting projects coming in. That doesn't mean we're going to make an offer for them, but things that we're an editor saying, worth this, looking this at. is worth a conversation, this yeah. is worth sharing, and um, can we get many, many more things than that a week? But the ones that actually get to the editors saying, this is worth our broader attention, that's probably about, on average, a couple of projects a week, maybe three. And... Of those, we, we only publish 40 originals a year, so we have to, and at least half of those are with people we've been working for for many years. So the kind of number of free slots, as it were, on our list, because we don't want our list to be too big. We, like, we've actually been getting it smaller and smaller rather than, even though the business has grown, the, the new title publishing count has reduced over the last few years. And I think for very good reasons, it's allowed us to focus more on each book and publish Put each more book. more attention on each thing that exactly. you're releasing and yeah. give it its full... And then in terms of when interesting things, you know, when does something come in that get, get really excited about? Well, actually quite often, because there's a lot of really interesting things out there. There are certain things that for me personally, I read and think is really, I admire it and I like it a lot. And I can see why it's an exciting thing for us to try and acquire and publish. And then there are the kind of, obviously the passion projects where you feel especially connected to the book, its contents, the author, kind of the creative act was a good example of that. This was something that I had a very hands-on role and continue to have a very hands-on role because this is something we'll always be publishing your book so we're on this kind of long journey we feel with every book it's not just oh we publish it and then you move on to the next thing you should always be always be kind of publishing every book you publish in a way but you can't do that to all thousands that's an interesting idea i don't know that the bigger corporate publishers look at it that way i think there's more of a sense of if it has you know, the new release comes and goes and then on to the next. Kind of, there's a lot of great publishing going on at the big corporates, but I do sometimes as an outsider to it, because I've never worked in a from Canada, so I've never worked in corporate publishing, but I've co-published books with lots of corporate publishers and I have lots of friends working in corporate publishing all around the world. And I sometimes feel just the sheer, you know, it's unfair to say it's like a conveyor belt. Certain imprints, I think it really is like a conveyor belt, but the sheer volume of titles means that unless something has had a lot of money paid for it, or unless it's by someone with a really high profile, and it's often one and the same, it's very easy for a book not to kind of get the necessary attention in-house that it deserves. And I think, you know, we're not alone, but I think independent publishers generally, because their lists are more focused, because they're not, publishing these big brand name, best-selling authors, they have to be more creative in launching new voices and publishing, bringing what they can bear to the publishing process, which is energy and focus and curation and real attention to detail. And these are the things that I think are vital for successful publishing. And particularly for things that don't have an obvious market for them when you first put them out into the world. So. We're ultra selective about the things we take on. And there has to be, it's not that everyone in the company has to love a book equally, but there has to be a genuine passion amongst at least some, if not all of the people in the company to say, this is a book we have to publish. This is what we need to publish because we think it's doing something, adding something really significant to the conversation. Always just hugely entertaining or, you know, yeah. there's many things that books yeah. do. It's, they don't tell have me, to be tell serious. Tell me some of the authors that you've repeatedly published. Well, the one that's probably the kind of 
best known right now because of this extraordinary trajectory he's been on is a writer called Matt Haig. He's a British writer. He writes children's books and he writes adults' books and he writes nonfiction as well as fiction. So he's quite unusual in that respect. And he came to us in 2010, having published his first three adult novels with Jonathan Cape, you know, very prestigious imprint within Penguin Random House. And they dropped him for his fourth novel, a novel called The Radleys. And Francis, our publisher at large, brilliant editor, and, and he and I have been working together for 22 years now. He, I remember him calling me very excitedly saying, Matt Haig just got in touch with me. He's just sent me directly his, this novel called The Radleys. Jonathan Caper turned it down. He said, would we be interested in looking at it? And Francis was already a fan of Matt's writing and Matt very generously quoted on some, he, there was already a, a shared sensibility. He, he was already a big supporter of some of the other writers on our list. And I'd never read Matt at this stage, but we end up acquiring this book. And it's a wonderful book about a family of abstaining vampires. And the two teenage kids don't know they're vampires at the beginning of the book. It's a, but it's a serious book about addiction. It's a serious book about desire, but it's also an incredibly funny kind of family novel, just a social comedy of sorts. So we end up buying the book. The fact that He's been on a downward decline with sales at Jonathan Cape. Doesn't bother us one bit because we're just reading the book thinking, this is fucking funny. And this is a very, this is a book that's got real commercial potential. So that was back in 2010 and we acquired world rights in the book. So we ended up selling him into quite a lot of languages and for a lot more money than we paid for the book. So even before we published it, we started to create something of a kind of event around this book. And then the book was published and it did well. Then it ended up being picked for the biggest book club in the country at the time called the Richard and Judy Book Club. So we actually, we did really nicely with it. But we, since then, we have published with Matt four adult novels, six children's books, and three books of nonfiction. So a lot. And he's also prolific as well as brilliant. And he'd never published nonfiction until he started working with us. He wrote a book called Reasons to Stay Alive, which is a book about depression and anxiety. He tried to kill himself in Ibiza in this mid-twenties, having been kind of working in the club scene there at Manumission and stuff. He and his girlfriend, now wife Andrea, they were in Ibiza for a few years. He, he was at a very, very low point of his life. And he wrote about it in this beautiful, kind of very personal and very original way of, of writing. It wasn't a conventional memoir at all. Kind of there's a there's just one little poem in it called Self-Help, which is just a four-line poem. It dropped on just one page. When you read it, there is a kind of linear flow to it as a book. You can read from beginning to end, but you can also drop in at certain points and just read a standalone essay. Not unlike the creative act on one level, it's got multiple access points. And this was his big breakout book. We'd done really nicely with his first two novels. We published The Radleys and a book called The Humans. But Reasons to Stay Alive became a big, big bestseller for us. And then we published a book called A Boy Called Christmas, which was a brilliant children's book inspired by his son saying to him at one point during Christmas, you know, was Father Christmas like when he was a little boy? And he thought he didn't have an answer to what Father Christmas was like as a little boy. So he wrote a novel in response to his son's question. And we don't really publish children's books, but we followed Matt in down that route. We had a huge success with A Boy Called Christmas. It was then turned into a great film that came out a couple of years ago. And we're now at this point, Rick, where his last novel called The Midnight Library is being published in 54 countries around the world. It spent 106 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, the hardcover list. I think 
Globally, the sales are somewhere between seven and eight million copies. So again, when we bought the Radleys back in 2010, he'd just been dropped by Jonathan Cape. There was Incredible. no, there was no idea for him or us of what the journey we were on. Incredible. So we've been on this beautiful journey with Matt for the last 13 years, and I can't even tell you what the title of the new novel is. We've got it under wraps till we announce it in September. But the new novel, I've been thinking about it a lot again when I was reading. You're in Jack's book. There's all sorts of interesting connections. The protagonist is called Grace, and there's all sorts of beautiful. It's all set in Ibiza, and it's a book about. It starts with that gorgeous Borges quote where he says, "Reality is not probable, nor is it likely," and it's it's about the kind of the mystery of life in without wanting to sound too kind of crass, but it's it's a beautiful new book. So this is exciting. We're going to publish this in September 24. We're just starting to share it with his kind of publishers around the world, and and that that's probably the most, for me, certainly for from a kind of impact it's had on Canagate. That's the single most important journey we've been on with an author. But there are many. Kind of, we published this woman called Ruth Azeki, who came into my life when I was ill. Her agent out of the blue drops me an email saying, "I've never done this to you before, but I've there's a book I really need and want you to read because I think it's amazing. It's called A Tale for the Time Being." She's a Zen Buddhist priest, as well as being an incredible writer,、um, Ruth Azeki. And we end up buying this book. It ends up being shortlisted for the Booker Prize. We go on this amazing journey together. We find a twenty-five publishers around the world. It's being translated, and her last novel, called The Book of Form and Emptiness, won the Women's Prize. So, and we've done a, a beautiful book with her called Time Code of a Face, which I think you would love. I'm not going to get into the details of it now, but it involves her staring. That mirror for three hours is a kind of meditative practice, and writing about what happens in the course of this three-hour journey she goes on, just looking at her face. It's a very, very remarkable piece of writing. So Ruth's just one of many other writers that we've been on an interest. Yann Martel, when we published Life of Pi in 2002, that was the first time we published. We published everything of Yann since then, and we don't think of publishing. Books. We think of publishing authors, so we like going on a long journey and going where they want to. As long as we think it's a sensible thing for them to go on, we're very happy to say, you know what, this isn't working for us, or maybe this is not going to be the next thing you should publish. And I think it's always important to have those honest and and kind of frank conversations. Tell me about the editor's role in a book project in the extremes, from the least hands-on to the most hands-on. Well, the least hands-on is. Literally, an author is so skilled at the kind of self-editing and stuff that they deliver something to you where you barely need to copy edit it. Kind of, it's kind of word perfect, as it were. Now that is pretty rare. Even very established and acclaimed writers benefit from that objective perspective. That particularly an editor, sometimes agents, some agents were editors and play a very important role in that early shaping of a, a manuscript. And there are other books where the authors really want and need that kind of editorial back and forth with an editor they trust, who's got real skills in being able to take that step back, which the author can't, and look at the overall structure and say, you know what, you need to introduce that character earlier, or this scene needs explaining more fully. And it, it some books get. Almost rewritten as part of that thing, and that they they look so different. The final book gets published from, say, the first draft that an author delivered. Some authors don't deliver first drafts; they'll do multiple drafts before they deliver it. That doesn't mean it doesn't then need a lot of work, but it it really varies enormously. And I think it's one of the 
hidden aspects of publishing is the role that an editor can play in the actual creation of the thing that you read. Because normally you just think, well, it's the book, it's got the author's name on it. You might read the acknowledgements and they'll say, thank you so much for to X or Y, who really played a real role in the, the kind of gestation and, and kind of evolution of this book's being. It just, it really masses, it varies enormously. It's a kind of, and also there's sometimes an author needs a lot more work with help on one book and another book just comes more easily. So it's, there's no kind of rules there. I think it's, in a way it's beautifully varied. And to me, it doesn't, all that matters is the final book. It doesn't matter how you get there and whether an editor plays a really pr pivotal role in it or not. Frankly, whatever's needed. It's whatever's needed, exactly. I can remember Pico Iyer telling me a story that one of his most popular books he wrote on the suggestion of his editor. His editor said, I think this would be a good book for you to write yeah. on this topic. And he wrote, and it was wildly successful. And I tend not to think of authors in that way as someone who might almost take an assignment, but it can work that they, way as well. Yeah, I, one of the projects that I'm really most proud of that we created at Canongate was we called it the Canongate Myths Project. And it, it span out of a project I did in 98 called the Pocket Canons, where we broke up the Bible into individual books and commissioned, in all instances, bar one, secular writers, in fact, bar two, secular writers to introduce that. And we used the King James version of the Bible because of its incredible kind of Shakespearean literary qualities in terms of the language. And um, having published the second series of books, I felt like I was scraping the barrel of the Bible. We'd done like 20 of them. There's, there's only so many books you want to reprint from the Bible. Uh, actually, can be work, read as works of literature and the four gospels are great examples of that as is Genesis, as is Ecclesiastes, as is Psalms there. And I was thinking, you know, when I was young, it wasn't the Bible that interested me, it was myths. I was obsessed by Greek myths, particularly as a kid, but I liked other mythological, mythological kind of traditions, but the Greek myths just captured my imagination as a, as a kind of young boy. And I was thinking, you know, there was something dissatisfying about the Bible project. We got these amazing people involved, but they just wrote a 2000 word introduction. What about if I went to an author and said, look, you can take whatever myth you like and retell it in whatever way you choose, have 25,000 words and make of it what you will in a kind of way of, that was almost an extension of what's going on anyway with myths, which is it's the constant retelling of stories, you know? So that's, that's, they're so primary in our way of kind of connecting with others and reinventing stories and retelling them. There's no set version of the myth of Oedipus. You know, it's a, it's a myth that has been told multiple times and will be told multiple times in the future. So in this instance, rather than going to authors first, I went to a bunch of publishers I've been getting to know around the world and said, look, I want to commission in the first instance half a dozen of these books, are you in? And I just went to a brilliant publisher called Salamander in Spain, went to Rizzoli in Italy, went to Flammarion in France, went to Knopf in Canada, went to Grove in America, Text in Australia, Bezica Bay in Holland. And by the time, before I'd even commissioned a book, I had basically 10 publishers saying, on board, Louis Schwartz, Compania das Letras in Brazil. So when I then went to the author and said, look, this is something I'm hatching, Canning was still pretty unknown as a publishing entity then, I was saying, look, I want to commission you to do this book and you're going to be published by Compania de Letras in Brazil, by Salamander in Spain, by Knopf in Canada, by, you know, Berlin Verlag in Germany. And the first person I asked to do this was, I think it was the first, was Margaret Atwood, who was immediately like, I love this idea. She retold the myth of Penelope and Odysseus, but, and called it the Penelope ad. And Philip Pullman took the myth of Jesus and wrote this one book called The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, which is brilliant. David Grossman took the myth of 
Samson and wrote a book called Lion's Honey, which was just beautiful. Jeanette Winston took the myth of Atlas and Heracles and called it Weight. And um, Karen Armstrong, I've been in an event with one of our authors called Richard Holloway, he used to be the Bishop of Edinburgh. And I was with Michael Ondaatje, who I'd been hoping I might persuade to do one of these books. And it's a book about the Buddha, because Karen had just written a book about it. And Richard at one point, right at the beginning of the event, said, Karen, I'd love you for the sake of the audience to just to kind of expand upon your kind of definition between mythos and logos. And she then goes into this incredible riff about myth. And I'm with Michael, I've just been telling about my myth series before, and I'm thinking, God, if anything's gonna make him wanna do a thing, kind of Karen just explaining why the myths and the retelling of myths are so important. So straight after that event, I'm in the kind of yurt at the Edinburgh Festival, and I go to Karen Armstrong and say, look, I'm working on this myth project. Would you write a short history of myth for us? Not a specific retelling of one myth, but actually give us a, you know, where where kind of storytelling animals is one of the lines from it, which is not a particularly new phrase or idea because it's been around for centuries that we are storytelling animals. But anyway, she wrote a book about a short history of myth. So that whole series, I commissioned writers to do something which they wouldn't have otherwise done. And in the case of Margaret Atwood, so we launched the series. I start working on it at Frankfurt in 99 is when I start having these conversations with these publishers. And then I start going to authors, I think in 2000, we launched the series five years later at the Frankfurt Bookware with 40 publishers around the world launching the series in their own countries. It was incredibly moving. We had a big press conference with Grossman, Atwood, Armstrong, Jeanette Winston. We had all the international publishers. There was media, TV, like incredible kind of um, launch. And then there's, a, Margaret Atwood ends up doing a whole tour with, with the other authors actually, but then she ends up, we we come back to London for a kind of closing event in London at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank. And afterwards we're having dinner. And I say to Peggy at one point, I say, this was an incredible gift, you agreeing to retell this story, the story of Penelope and Odysseus for our series. And, you know, I just wanted to say thank you because all the writers were good who were part of it. Having Margaret Atwood as part of that launch, she not only had real international kind of appeal, critically and commercially, she's a big writer. She's someone who sits in that interesting space that not all literary writers do. Anyway, she was very kind of modest and sweet. She said, look, I'm just so happy you asked me to do it because otherwise I really enjoyed writing this book and I love this book and I wouldn't have written it if you hadn't asked me. She claims I jumped out from behind a gorse bush before she'd had sufficient coffee in the morning and uses a kind of mythological trope to how I managed to persuade her when she was vulnerable and disarmed to, to, uh, to say yes. Hadn't had her morning coffee. Had her morning coffee. And it was, again, it was up in Edinburgh during a, a book festival up there, maybe in uh, 2000 or 2001 that I jumped behind this gorse bush, kind of Loki like Tell me about Edinburgh, I've never been. Paint me a picture of Edinburgh. It's surrounded by seven hills. And it's got incredible kind of topographical kind of variety within it. The kind of the castle is on a hill right in the middle of the city. You've got this old volcano called Arthur's Seat, which is kind of a counterpoint to it, which is probably a mile and a half away, which is magnificent. Got these things called the Salisbury Crags on the front of it. It's like just visually stunning. You can see down to the sea from there. So it's it's not on the sea, Edinburgh, kind of Leith and Portobello are the kind of the satellite towns. How many that, minutes to the sea driving? If you're going down to Leith, it's probably 15 minutes. Okay. It's close, 20 so minutes. Close. And then if you look up the other way, you've got the Firth of Forth, which is, you know, you go over the Forth Road Bridge and that takes you into Fife. So you're kind of on this interesting 
corner in the northeast tip of the southern bit of Scotland before you get into basically go north up into the highlands and beyond. So geographically, it's set in this stunning place. Architecturally, it's magnificent. It's very old. Bits of it are very old. It's got, and you know, the new town, as they call it, was actually built in the very late 18th, early 19th century. That's called the new town because it's in contrast to the old town, which is the really ancient part of the city, which is where Canongate's offices. We're just off the Royal Mile. The Royal Mile literally goes from the castle. It's a beautiful street, goes for a mile down to Holyrood Palace. And would that be a thousand years old, like that part? The castle, I think bits of the castle are like, go back to like 600 or 700. So like 1600, 1500 years old. So you've got a real sense of history when you're in there. But it doesn't feel urban, doesn't feel like a big city in certain, because it's small-ish. You can, the population's I think only half a million or something, or 600,000, you can walk. And it's spread out a bit? Ultimately, it's spread out a bit with its suburbs and stuff, but actually the, what I would regard as Edinburgh, the, the centre of Edinburgh is, you know, you could walk really from all the key places in the centre of Edinburgh from one place to another in not more than half an hour. So it feels, it feels quite compact as a city and it's got Waverley Station, the trains go right through the middle of it, which is kind of cool. It's an old railway station and it's kind of... Are they underground or do you see them? You can see them from certain points. It's got another beautiful hill called Carlton Hill, which has got almost like this unfinished Acropolis on it, which is like they didn't finish it, which is kind of magnificent. So it's got this kind of neoclassical part to some of its architecture from the kind of 19th century, but it's um, a lot of cobbled streets, which is nice, not all. And like in many cities in the UK, terrible things was done in the 60s and 70s where they just knocked down beautiful crescents and stuff to put these kind of ugly monstrosities up for reasons that no one can really understand now. It seems kind of brutal what they did, but it's retained a lot of its character and it's a capital city. It's got two brilliant, it's got three great galleries, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, the Gallery of Modern Art. It's got a lot of things going for it and I think is is a truly kind of international city. It feels lovely being out of London as well. It was for me, I think a very important part of kind of what fed my kind of outlook being, I think being an independent publisher, being out of London, being away from what felt like the kind of mainstream on certain time, in certain ways, I felt I had more space to kind of experiment and do things there, but also, you know, independence and freedom are so connected, those two ideas. And I think for, as a kind of, for us as a kind of publishing force, I think being independent and the freedoms that come with that have enabled us to do things that I don't think we would have done if we were in London. Yeah. I think it's fundamentally altered yeah. our, our being as a publishing in-house, as a group of people, as a collective, because of where we're situated. There's also an amazing tradition of Scottish writers and Scottish, so there's, it's rich in other ways too, but I think the very fact that we were out of London and, yes. and it just reinforced our independence in a way. One of the people I spoke to who works at Cannon Gate in London though, came from the Edinburgh office, said people in London look inward, people from Edinburgh look outward. I think that's so true and I'm so glad I lived in Edinburgh for 15 years and I didn't move down to London until 2004, so in fact, yeah, it's one of the things that growing up in a big city has almost a parochial view of this is how it is. You talk about it in a number of the podcasts you did when talking about your journey and yeah. being in Long Island and coming yeah. to the city and, and the kind of 
first of all, the attractions of the city on one level, but also the different perspective it gave you. The the freedom to not fall into the single vision of this is the way things are done. Yeah, because I think there are kind of multiple visions in any city of the way things are done, but there was something, it's more to do with the kind of, there's so much going on within the city of London or within any other big capital cities that the need or the feeling of the need to look out with is just is diminished somehow and i think that point you make that this colleague of mine said is something i felt really strongly i think my natural engagement with publishers from all around the world was partly fueled by being in edinburgh than london i'm not saying i wouldn't have wanted to have relationships with all sorts of publishers around the world if i was in london and i know i am in london but i think it was part of my different mentality it was the outlook it's a different mentality so i think you know we've been there for 50 years in edinburgh and it will always be Canongate's heart will be in that city. So for me, it's, and for the reasons we talked about earlier, it's the city where, you know, because of living with Charlie my first year and meeting my, Whitney, my first wife, my first two children being born there. And there's so many reasons why that city has, I feel I owe it a huge amount. It's, it's enabled me to grow in ways that are probably different from any other, if I'd grown up in any other city and gone through my kind of early adulthood in, in any other city, I think I would have probably possibly been a done different things you know you mentioned earlier going from chocolate city and the reference to the white house to eventually publishing obama's book being an independent publisher how did you come to publish obama's well book? that book has a very interesting publishing history so it was published in 1994 dreams from my father was published and uh, this was pre-politics. He was just starting to get involved in kind of local politics in Illinois, Chicago area. But he had been this, he had been at Harvard Law School he'd been to. And he'd, anyway, he was commissioned to write this memoir in his early 30s. Publishes the book. It has a modicum of success in America and then goes out of print. And then he gives his famous speech in 2004 at the Democratic nomination where he's this kind of, young senator from Illinois. And he gives this um, speech that kind of lit the world up, particularly in America. People were like, wow, who is this guy? And, and so someone, a smart editor working at Crown called Rachel Clayman, she was like, she was Googling around Barack Obama. And so it's like, we published his memoir fucking 10 years ago and it was out of print. So they reprinted it. And I have a very close publishing partner in Australia called Michael Haywood runs a great independent called Text, which Canongate owned 70% of for a chunk of time. We were in in direct business in that kind of way for a seven-year period, but we've always co-published a lot of books together. He did the Myth series, he did the Bible series. We've shared writers and books since we first met in 1997 at a book fair in Chicago. And I was actually in the Bay Area, I was in Berkeley at a sales conference because we used to work with very closely with Grove Atlantic in America. Um, publishing our books in the States. So I've been doing this sales conference with PGW in Berkeley. And I remember I'm walking in San Francisco and I've just had some great lunch, eating amazing oysters and stuff. And I'm walking along and I get a call out of the blue from Michael. And I'm outside a bookshop when he calls me just by complete random chance. He calls me and says, hey, Jamie, how are you doing? Is this now a good time to talk? I'm like, absolutely. I'm just strolling in San Francisco. And he's like, I've just read this memoir by this guy called Barack Obama, and I don't know if you've heard of him, but and I don't know where he's going, but this is a beautiful memoir, and I really want to buy the rights 
the Australian New Zealand rights, and it's not been published in the UK either. And at this stage, we still, we owned a big chunk of the business. Not that he was needing to get kind of my approval. It was simply- just excited about it. Excited, and you should read it. As I'm talking to him, I kid you not, they've got a cutout of Barack Obama in the window of the bookshop that I'm standing outside. And I'm like, you're not gonna believe this. And the audacity of hope had just come out at this point, which was his next book. That was the phrase he used at the Democratic nomination. It was the audacity of hope was this thing that captured people's imaginations. And I say to Michael, no kidding, I'm looking at Barack Obama right now. I walk in, I get a copy of both the new book, The Audacity of Hope and um, Dreams from My Father. Read Dreams from My Father on the way back to the UK. We end up buying the rights for, for both books. So we originate the, the new book, The Audacity of Hope, but then do Dreams from My Father. And then he declares he's gonna run against Hillary. And to begin with, it's like, well, that's great that he is, that'll be good for the book, but no expectation that he no could possibly, possibly kind of take on the Clinton machine and like, and he was black and all the reasons, but for reasons that have always been well documented, what he did and at a grassroots level. And interestingly, I've always thought if he hadn't written that book, he wouldn't have got in the White House. Because by the time the election actually happened, that book had sold like 4 million copies in America. And if you read that book, you get a sense of that person that is very attractive, that's someone who's open. And I, I'm, there were lots of factors that led to him getting into the White House. But I wouldn't, I, I would say it was a significant factor, that memoir, in people trusting him, believing him, and realizing this is someone who's got a vision for this country that is a vision that I kind of subscribe to as, as well. So um, that's how that happened. It was just one of these you know, serendipitous things, very fortunate when I look back on it. And obviously he then became president and, and the book ended up selling close on 2 million copies for us. So it was like, we didn't buy it with that expectation. We bought it because it was a brilliant memoir. Yes, yeah, no expectation, of course. And that's a very, kind of, there's nothing wrong with having aspirations and hopes for a book when you buy them. You of need course. to in a way, you of have to course. have a kind of vision for how, but that vision is not quantified simply in sales. It's like, you've got a vision for, how you want to put this book into the world, whether it then takes yeah. is out of your control at the end of the day. It was only, you only got a little bit of impact on that. At the end of the day, other forces, not least readers, take over. Yes. Tell me about how publishing has changed over the course of your career. Wow, that's an interesting question and not an easy one to answer succinctly other than to say it's changed a lot kind of the digital revolution is just one aspect of what's happened and all the, not only in terms of formats, because the ebook didn't exist when I joined publishing, Audiobooks did exist, but on cassettes, this was even pre-CD I'm thinking, or maybe CDs were just, just happening when, the point is audio was not a format that was what it's become. But significantly, we didn't have online retailers. And so Amazon didn't exist. Can I think Jeff Bezos, I think Jeff Bezos was at Book Expo America. I think first time he kind of exhibited Amazon there. I think, maybe I'm getting the decade wrong, but I think it was 2004. Maybe it was earlier than that. But the point is he, he had a little stall and he was kind of, he was just like a, an exhibitor at the Book Expo America. No one who met him then thought this was guy was gonna have the impact he did, not just on book selling, but on commerce and e-commerce in, in and the internet didn't really exist. You know, but social media as we know it didn't exist. So I'm not saying these things have all changed publishing 
completely, but they've all played significant effects, both positive and negative, on the way books get read, the way books get found. Kind of, they've it's been a, it's the cliche of the double edged sword. There's been so many positives, I think, that have come about from this, and there's unquestionably been negatives as well. And you know, I was talking with my dear friend and one of by many mentors in publishing, just at dinner a couple of nights ago, a man called Morgan Entrican, who, who runs Grove Atlantic in New York. And kind of we were, one of the things we chatted about at one point, it's not something that was new to me, but just kind of Morgan just articulating it again. When I first met him in the in 95, the literary landscape in America was one that had, most new papers had a dedicated book section to them. There, there was the discourse around books within print media was very significant. It's been decimated. You've got the New York Times Book Review. You've got books occasionally get reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post and stuff, but it's there's a tiny fraction now of what used to exist. But he created, as a result, something called the Literary Hub, Lit Hub, which has now become using, obviously, digital technology as an online platform, get something like 7 million visits a week for, you know, articles that they post, and they're kind of trawling the what's going on around the world, really interesting articles to do with literature or stuff, putting them up there. So it's an amazing free kind of resource for people. What's it called? It's I've called been... Lit Hub. Lit Hub. That's the shorthand, Literary Hub, uh, yeah. Lit Hub. And he started it with no idea of where it was going to go, but it, it was almost because of this diminishment, a diminishing of the kind of discourse around books in the traditional media, he felt something needed to be a kind of corrective to that. So he created Lit Hub as a, as a kind of spin-off from Grove Atlantic. And it's so that's a good example of where what's happened has been both good and bad in the last 30 years, kind of the diminishing of traditional book coverage in newspapers. It's sad, I think, because it's, it's made it harder to publish certain kinds of books and break new writers in the way that papers could really help that. But then podcasts and websites like this, social media, there are all sorts of things that have provided a kind of a counterbalance to some of the things that have made it harder to publish. There are lots of things that made it easier to publish, easier to get word out about a book and actually give less the gatekeepers of the newspapers how all the broad, the traditional media had such a control over it. Now it feels like it's a much more open playing field in certain ways. So I, as an independent publisher, I feel that we're, it's a good time to be an independent publisher. Also because the, the broader industry has just, it's consolidated a lot, you know, as and this Simon & Schuster acquisition by Penguin Run House was actually not backed by the DOJ in America just recently, but that would have been yet another massive piece of kind of conglomerization. But you've basically got five, you know, super groups in the English language, and there's Bertelsmann that owns Penguin Random House and hundreds of imprints. You've got Hachette that French own that has, you know, is a owns Little Brown and 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 a lot of publishing in the US and you've got HarperCollins which is a kind of another of these huge groups and you've got the Holt Spring group that owns Macmillan and Picador and all of that and and Simon Schuster is the other one kind of these entities didn't exist 40 years ago you were just seeing the beginnings of the kind of the acquiring of independent publishers and bolting them together to create these kind of bigger businesses and and all the kind of benefits of scale that can be enjoyed if you're a bigger business so that's just increased and increased over the last 30 years. But there's new independence popping up. And, and I think the independence, 
that are still around. There are some really kind of in Britain, which is the market I know most, there are, there's Faber and there's Serpent's Tail Profile and there's Granter and there's Us and there's Pushkin and there's Atlantic and there's, there are a number of independents who are doing, I think, brilliant work and can publish at a, a level that can compete with the biggest publishing groups because of this kind of level of playing field on certain, in certain respects. So I think it's, I think if you're focused and you're sharp and you're kind of careful about what you publish and how you publish it, I think it's actually a really exciting time to be a publisher. I, I certainly feel as excited now as I have at any point in the 31 years I've been at Canada. How have bookstores changed? Well, that again is an interesting thing where in the UK, all the book chains, the kind of specialized bricks and mortar book chains have disappeared apart from Waterstones. The only other one that's on the high street that's a chain is WH Smith's and they sell stationery and all sorts. They're not really a book section. They do have book sections. They're, they're often in airports as well. Yeah, and often in Smith. airports. They're significant there. But all the other chains that used to be around, they've all been hoovered up partly by Waterstones, but also because of Amazon. Yeah, Amazon has had a very negative impact on the traditional bookshop. The ones that kind of Waterstones and Barnes & Noble are now owned by a uh, the same company run by this guy, James Daunt, on both sides, who started life as an independent bookseller running Daunt's in Marlborough High Street. And then he built a small group, which still exists of six or seven independent bookstores, all part of the Daunt's chain. And partly due to him, he's turned both of those businesses around and kind of um, because they were really flailing in the noughties and they, were, they didn't know how to compete with Amazon. And, and what what James did, which was so good, and it's what all the great independent booksellers do, is they made a virtue of their independence, their relationship with their customers, their curation of the space, all the things that actually Amazon are not very good at doing. And Amazon's great if you want to buy a book, you already know what it is. But for discovery, yeah. it's not. It's also interesting that Amazon has grown into what it's grown into, starting with just books. books. It is, isn't it? Because while we love them... Feel niche compared to... They feel niche compared to everything else... And the but fact I, that the entire Amazon business was began with that. Just books. But I think Bezos has talked about that. Coming about books is like other kind of perishable goods and stuff. It's like, first of all, in the warehousing of them, they're relatively high priced for the amount of space they take up and that they, as inventory to sit on it, you know, you, I think it has a kind of longer life than some inventory. It doesn't have to be turned around as quickly. You've got, and also he recognized that there was no competition for what he, he was, I think that branding was the biggest bookshop in the world. Yeah. And it was a really simple but true proposition that he yes. had 250,000 titles in his inventory to begin with. And a big bookshop, a big bookshop has like 50,000. Yeah. And often a bookshop will only have 4,000. Yes. So he recognized an opportunity and a very, and a very kind of what state. What you lose with that scale is the curation. Absolutely. There's, the curation, the table of the new releases. And they what's don't give a fuck front. about curation Amazon. They really don't. There was a time when they started, they had brilliant editors who were doing Amazon staff picks where actual individuals were reading books, highlighting them within the ecosystem of Amazon and saying, this is our book of the month. It's, you know, and you'd actually get a person writing something really smart and incisive saying, this is a book worth your attention. And I think they just wrote, oh, we don't really need that. It's like a cost that we can yeah. write, you know. It's also an opportunity for someone who wants to start a business to be an overlay on the Amazon fulfillment center 
of this is my independent bookshop online, my digital independent bookshop. Well, you know the whole bookshop.org? Do you know about bookshop.org? Which is a fascinating online bookselling kind of platform, which started this guy, Andy Hunter, again, Morgan, who started Lit Hub Runs Grove, was involved in helping Andy set that up too. And he launched it literally six weeks before the first lockdown happened. And what he did, which is very good, is he's he basically harnessed all the independent booksellers in the country. So they kind of f- harness all the orders online from these bookshops who can have their own website and do their own fulfillment, but they, they really engage with the independents. And then they split a portion of all the profits that come from bookshop.org amongst all the independent booksellers. So it's kind of, it's created a central hub. So they, they can do the fulfillment of books that the, the independent bookshop is neither, either neither tooled up in terms of the actual dispatch or even just the stock to be able to do it. So they have the equivalent of Amazon type sized inventory of stock. So if a bookshop in Minnesota, you know, if you go via bookshop.org and you're a customer of a Minnesota bookshop, you find your book and then you end up buying it on bookshop.org. Loads of authors have been really supportive of it. So they have brilliant lists from authors of 10 books that they love that they, so it's, it's really curated as a space and it's harnessing all the independent booksellers kind of, kind of communities. And it's then sharing profits from it throughout the whole independent bookselling sector. So it's created a very interesting alternative to Amazon. And the timing on its launch was just incredible. So I think Morgan, he was telling me over dinner that when he and Andy were talking about projections for their first year, they'd, I think, Andy said, I think we could do like four and a half million dollars or something like that. And and Morgan was talking to a friend of his at Ingram saying, what do you think of this? I think it's maybe both Phil and he were saying, maybe it's more like a little high. It's probably like three and a half or something. They did $41 million turnover in their first 12 months. So it kind of got off to this incredible start, which was almost a proof of its, of concept. Yes. Helped by the timing, obviously, but nevertheless. And then they've started bookshop.org in the UK, which has become a, it's not as big as it is in America for obvious reasons. It's just a much smaller market, but it's become a very important alternative to Amazon for online retailing. And Waterstones.com is, is now got its shit together, which it didn't for the first. You know what Waterstones did for the first five, I think for the first five, possibly even like seven years of Waterstones.com, their online selling books, they allowed Amazon to do all the fulfillment and mm-hmm. keep all the data for every transaction that took place on the Waterstones website. It's like, because they, first of all, they were slightly dismissive of Amazon. They didn't think Amazon were ever going to kind of threaten their core business of bookshops, yes. physical bookshops. And they thought online was just a small add-on. So they gave it to literally what ended up becoming their arch rival. They gave them their entire online business for yes. seven years. It just... Amazing. Yeah. Do you know the uh, clothing store, The Gap? Of course, yeah. Okay, so The Gap started as a seller of Levi's jeans. That's what they were known for. So if you want Levi's, you go to The Gap everywhere. And then at one point, whoever was running The Gap decided, why don't we just make our own jeans? Why are we buying them from Levi's? <laughs> and then one day, all of the people who were going to buy their Levi's, all of a sudden the jeans, now they look the same, but now they're Gap jeans. <laughs> And just completely, it's wild. These relationships that we think of as solid (laughs) in business, there are a lot of pieces involved. (laughs) Yeah, and we may be exhausted the kind of subject of, although it's, as I said, it's it's a a lot has changed in in the last thirty years in the publishing landscape. But the change of formats has been interesting, and and it's interesting how. There was a point about 10 years ago when 
the ebook was really, or maybe even 13 years ago, 2009, 2010, I think was when the kind of ebook format started to really get kind of traction and, uh, yes. and it wasn't just the Kindle and Amazon. It was like Sony had their ebook reader and there were other things. It grew so fast so quickly that people were like, if it continues at this rate, basically print publishing as we know it and the reading of the physical book. And there were all these doomsayers saying, it's only a question of time before everyone goes digital and turned out to be utter nonsense. It actually plateaued after about three or four years and is now, I think, slightly declining ebook mm. sales. So it's kind of interesting as a, I think as an overall part of the market, I don't think they're more than 15% now. And it might even be more like 12. At one point they were up at 20. Yeah. And for some areas of genre fiction in particular, you know, for crime and thrillers and romance, kind of very disposable things, I think they, have a, they do have a bigger market share. But what's- I think also there's a, people are getting exhausted looking at a screen. Completely, that's part of yeah, why this has happened. I also think publishers around the world have raised their game when it comes to the physical book, the production values, the amount of time spent on the typography, the covers, the cover finishes, so that the thing itself becomes even more distinctive than a digital version. And I think the map of a book and your ability to navigate it is totally different with a physical book in the way you can, you know, it's a physical object. So it feels like it's got a cartography that doesn't exist with a digital version of it because it's actually, it's three dimensional. So you kind of go into the book and literally, I think you go into the story in a profoundly different way when you're reading a physical book as opposed to something on screen. Russell Brand, who you've published told me a story. He said he was having a conversation with you and he was referencing a book. And he said in the book that he was referencing was a self-help book. And you said to him, all books are self-help books. Yeah, I believe that. I it's a great way of seeing it. Yeah, I, I also think every reader is a bookseller, yeah. which is something I've always been passionate about. Every reader is a bookseller. If you don't get that, then you're missing something very important about the role you have in engaging readers on behalf of the writers who's books you're responsible for taking care of. You're kind of, you know, you have a real responsibility and duty as a publisher to look after those stories and to take those stories to people who can evangelize and share those stories more widely. I, I don't know if we've talked about something I initiated in 2000 and I think it was 2011 I did it called World Book Night, where we ended up giving a million books to a million people in one day. Wow, beautiful. I got every publisher in the UK involved in it. Well, not every, but there were 25 titles in the thing. We printed 40,000 copies How of How do you each. decide on what books to gift? I got a group of, I think we had a group of about 15 people on this committee to help us decide or to come up with an amazing mix of 25 books. We had 2,000 libraries and bookshops who were involved as pickup points for the givers who each got 50 copies of a book that they loved, which they were then encouraged to give out in their community to anyone who they thought would, you know. It was amazing, Rick. We launched at Trafalgar Book Square, uh, in Trafalgar Square with 7,000 people on a night in March 2011. And Nick Cave performed. He read The Beginning of Lolita. Um, Margaret Atwood read From the Blind Assassin. John Le Carre closed the show reading the last the opening lines of The Spy who came in from the cold. Uh, Tracy Chevalier did this incredible reading from Beloved. Um, Sarah Waters was there, David Nichols, Stanley Tucci, DBC Pierre. It was a, Graham Norton was the compare for the night. So that's how we kicked it off. And then the next day, yeah, a million books were given to a million people. And you know what started that? Was Margaret Atwood, when we were having this dinner about the myths, and I said, that was a beautiful 
gift you agreeing to retell a myth for the mysteries. She said, I was glad you asked me, I would have done it. Do you know The Gift by Lewis Hyde? And I'd never heard of this book. And she said, this is one of my, I've given more copies of this book away than any other book ever written, including any of the books I've written. And she said, you've got to make me a promise. I'm going to send you this book. And if you love it as much as I think you will, you've got to reprint it. And I was like, well, that's a pretty easy promise to <laughs> commit to. So I said, sure. We ended up publishing this book in 2008, I think it was. People who'd never read it before, like Zadie Smith gave me this amazing quote for it. David Foster Wallace wrote this beautiful thing for the book jacket. And anyway, when we paperbacked the book, in the spirit of Lewis's book, which is about the kind of intrinsic nature of the gift that makes something that is given different from something that's been bought that is part of a kind of commercial transaction. I was to my colleagues, look, when we publish the paperback, let's give, we'll do it on the South Bank in London and Lothian Road in Edinburgh, let's give 500 copies of the paperback away to whoever. You know, there's just like, let's stop, you know, you've got to have someone who, the person who's giving away has to know something about the book, otherwise it just feels like you're giving out kind of one of those Bible Jehovah's Witnesses kind of literature. <laughs> it's uh, and we did that in 2009 when the paperback came out. And I can't 100% kind of prove that it's why the gift of the paperback did so well. But the book ended up doing so well in paperback for us. And I feel by short-circuiting the process by which books actually get read, i.e. putting them into bookshops, someone's got to go into the bookshop, they've got to pay money for it, they've got to find it amongst the sea of books, by short-circuiting it, by going straight to people and saying, this is a book I want you to have. Read this. Read this. Yeah. We did something which I think directly impacted, not the entire reason the book sold, but it had a very beneficial impact on it. So I've always believed that one of the smartest things you can do as a publisher, so I've always given so many, I, I never travel anywhere without books on me, and I give people books randomly on the street, as you've seen from some of those <laughs> yes. photos I've sent you with the creative act. And when you give someone something like that in that way with sincerity, with no expectation of yes. anything in return, it does something beautiful between the interaction between two humans. And, and then the, the thing that you've given is, is invested with something that it didn't have prior to being given in that way. So this was the thinking that's at the heart of Lewis Hyde's The Gift, which informed the paperbacking of The Gift, which then created World Book Night, which was, you know, is still going. It's a kind of initiative that I'm so proud of being part of. And, but I kind of, it was my idea originally. And I then brought this woman, Julia Kingsford, and I really kind of honed the thinking together and then brought the whole of the kind of publishing industry in the UK on board with it. Tell me about Letters Live. Oh, God, where to start? Um, Tell me about the Letters books first. Yeah, we, we published in September 13 two books about letters. One was called Letters of Note. The subtitle is Correspondence Deserving of a Wider Audience. Always <laughs> love that subtitle of Sean's. It's great. Curated by this guy, Sean Usher. Started a blog in 2009. Became really popular, this blog, because he posted Correspondence Deserving of a Wider Audience. He ended up getting some incredible traction with his kind of blog. He, and do you find out about him through the blog? No, I found out about him through a friend of mine called John Mitchison, who started a crowdfunding really interesting publishing model, almost going back to the 19th century when often books were subscribed to before they were published. Mm -hmm. You became, basically, you crowdfunded the publication of Alexander Pope's poetry or whatever. This is how a lot of books came to be. <coughs> so they were kind of printed to order, 500 copies of the first printing to 500 people at all, who played, all paid a guinea or whatever it was to do it. So he used this model using, obviously, harnessing the power of the internet first book they ever signed up was Sean Asher's Letters of Note because it already had this kind of 
online kind of presence and following. And and John, who I knew pretty well, he'd been at Harville Press, the independent publishing house. In fact, I first met him. He was at head office back in the day at Waterstones. We ended up publishing that book together. And we did another brilliant book by Simon Garfield called To the Letter, which was a kind of a narrative non-history of, of the kind of the evolution of the letter within kind of culture within society around the world. And I did this, put this show on called Letters Live, which we did in a small little theater in West London called The Tabernacle. And Nick Cave is in the original volume Letters of Note. We published a very brilliant, funny, memorable letter about to MTV. He's just been nominated for the Best Male Artist Award. Partly, well, only because of this duet he's done with Kylie Minogue. So he thinks, oh, first of all, it's ridiculous that I'm being nominated for it. They've never even played a Bad Seeds track on the MTV or yeah. barely any. Yeah. So he writes a letter basically explaining why he doesn't want to be considered for the Best Male Artist Award. He has this memorable phrase, my muse is not a horse. I'm in a race with no one. She scares easily. And so I called up Nick and said, look, I'm thinking about doing this event where I'm going to get people to read letters on stage. <laughs> would you come and read your letter to MTV? And he was like, sure, I'd love to read that letter. And I said, well, if you're going to come, if I get a piano on stage, will you play your song Love Letter as well? Because that would be beautiful, wouldn't yeah, it? I love that song so too. That's a gorgeous song. Yeah. And he said yes. And then the next person I contacted was Gillian Anderson, who I happened to just know in London. And there's a letter from Catherine Hepburn to Spencer Tracy in the book that was written, I think, 15 years after Spencer Tracy had died. And it starts, Dear Spence. And it's just this beautiful letter from... Catherine Hepburn to the love of her life, just saying, I'm still missing you. And, you know, just reminiscing about him and their relationship. And, and I sent that to Gillian and she immediately was like, this is an amazing letter. I've got to read it. So suddenly I had Nick Cave and Gillian Anson were the first two to say yes. And it all just grew from there. You know, we ended up putting on that show. Benedict Cumberbatch took part in that. So did Juliet Stevenson. So did Neil Gaiman. We had about a cast of 12, I think. And then... It just evolved from there and off. Three of the first four shows Benedict did. So I went to Benedict and his partner, Adam, who'd also been his TV and film producing partner, and said, look, I want to move this concept out of Canongate and as a standalone business, Letters Live. Do you want to come in as partners? And so Sean, who's the curator of the Letters of Notebooks and the website, and Sunny March, which is the name of Benedict and Adam's TV and film company, and Canongate, it's a kind of joint venture between the three of us. And we're... The next show is at the Royal Albert Hall on November 16th, sold 5,000 tickets in a day. Kind of, it's got, and we don't announce who's ever going to perform Amazing. it. Amazing. So you've yet to come to one, but I can't wait for you to yeah. experience one because it's a, it's a beautiful show because letters are these incredible little time capsules and kind of a whole, when we're producing the shows, we want to take people through the emotional ringer. We want to make them cry. We want to make them laugh. We want to transport them to places they've not been to make them think about things in a way that they've never thought about them. And, Letters allow you to do that in a very exciting way. We've always had charities involved in every single show we've ever done. We've raised money for a charity. We work a lot with literacy charities, which is something that's very dear to my heart, but also this great organization called Choose Love, who do just really important work with refugees around the world. They, they were the beneficiaries of the last Royal Albert Hall shows last autumn, and they're going to be the beneficiaries of the show this November. And now Mont Blanc have become our global sponsor for Letters Live, which is a lovely fit. So it's one of the other hats I wear beyond running Canongate is, is being a kind of a key part of Letters Live. I love Beautiful. it. Beautiful. And it sounds like the kind of thing that there could be more 
live events related to reading and related to literature, you're proving that the written word performed live is of value. Yeah, and other people are doing it. I think we're doing it in a very specific way with Letters Live, but as or Letters Live, as I sometimes like to call it as well, but it's Letters Live, but it is Letters Live because we bring letters yeah. back to life yes, through, yeah. the, through the performance of them. But um, letters make up words, which make up sentences, which make up books. So, you know, Letters Live is actually, as, a, as an overall brand, could be used to doing things beyond specifically the letter form in that kind of, in that kind of more reductive sense. So it's, I've sometimes thought we could do things that didn't necessarily have to involve the performance of letters. And we always have music as part of every show because that's an important part of the journey that we take the audience on. We always begin and end every show with a piece of music. So it's not just letters, but yeah, the, the bringing kind of performance poets have been doing it for a long time in a very exciting way. And but they're very um, few and far between. I don't know of any poetry events that are happening at the Albert Hall. And no, not on a regular basis. Although actually, uh, the guy, Matt Todd there, just yesterday we were having an exchange about, about Paul Drago Tumor, and I was saying yes. what he's done with Poetry Unbound, we yes. should do a, a one-off show at the Royal Album Hall. Yes. And, you know, Michael Horowitz did this famous thing in the 60s at the Royal Album Hall, the Poetry Olympics, which had Allen Ginsberg out. It was like this incredible pact. And I think you're right, Letters Live has shown the appetite for yes. this for audiences. And I think poetry is another brilliant format of writing that really lends itself to performance and because of its often short form nature to this kind of a collective show where you get a number of poems read like you get a number of letters by different people. So, um, yeah. Tell me how you came to publish The Peanuts. As a kid, the Observer magazine at the back would always print one of those kind of landscape peanuts cartoons, not the kind of single strips, but like yes. three columns. And so as a kid, I religiously would cut out the kind of thing. And my wallpaper in my bedroom was made up of peanuts cartoons. I was obsessed by Snoopy as a kid. Yeah. I loved Woodstock and the whole crowd, yes. but you know, I had Snoopy, a Snoopy is king. Snoopy's king at Woodstock <laughs> is a very, for me, the kind of, his little kind of court gesture. He's <laughs> um, uh, Woodstock and Snoopy were important figures in my in my kind of childhood world. So it was a we ended up partnering with Fantagraphics, who did this incredible, you know, the complete works of Peanuts. So we joined them early on it. So we've done all twenty six volumes of everything Schultz ever did, and then we've done these little spin off books. And to me, it's just a kind of. It's more than a labor of love. They actually do really well, but they're also just beautiful things to be representing to the world. I think he's, I think Charles Schultz was a genius. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, don't mention it. If you're doing it here, I can't think of a better place to be having a conversation with you, Rick. It's a joy, you know, pleasure and honor. Thank you.